I've entitled this message, uh, Gospel Side Effects May Include... Dot, dot, dot. Uh, what, what happens... Or, sorry, let me re-ask that question. Kids, why would you take medicine? Kids, why do you take medicine? To make you feel better. You take, you take a medicine because of the effects of what will happen when you take it. Now, when we talk about side effects, often we're talking about the negative things that happen, right? You know, might make you feel funny, affect your vision, whatever. You, you open up the medicine box and there's that big sheet of paper that has all the potential side effects on it. But those are the bad side effects. What we're actually taking the medicine for is the good side effects, the things that we want to change. The medicine helps us. Medicine causes something to happen in our bodies that we're taking it for a good reason. And today we have a passage in Acts chapter 19 that tells us about the good side effects of sharing the gospel and some kind of strange side effects of sharing the gospel. When the good news, the gospel of Jesus is shared with people, then things happen. Some side effects are great. Some side effects are unexpected. Some side effects are not quite as fun, but even though sometimes awkward or bad things happen when people share the gospel, the gospel is that important that we need to keep sharing it nonetheless. So the gospel side effects may include four things that we're looking at this morning, four, four things. And for you people who like lists, you know, numbers, one, two, three, one A, one B, well, I've got great news for you this morning because we've got lots of points and subpoints. But if you're following along on your, on your outline, you can see them all there. So four side effects. What are the four side effects of sharing the gospel? The first one is that we get the whole gospel for a full faith. The side effect of sharing the gospel is we get the whole gospel for a full faith. We see this in verses 1 to 6. We're given a short story about what happens when Paul shares the gospel with folks who haven't got all the pieces of faith yet. You see, Paul had uh, traveled through Ephesus on his last missionary trip, and he, they had asked him to say, stay last time he was in Ephesus, and he said, sorry, no, I've got to keep going. But now he's come back again, and he is stopping in Ephesus for a while. But last time when he was coming through Ephesus, there was a fellow named Apollos who was a preacher and teacher. He was a switched on guy. He knew a lot. He was an excellent teacher, but he didn't have all the pieces together for a full faith. And so Priscilla and Aquila, a couple, took Apollos aside and he humbly listened to them and received further instruction so that he was better equipped to share the gospel. And so after that, Apollos went out with the church's blessing to the region around Corinth. I'll pull up a map in a moment where we talk about all these places. And this is where our passage picks up today with Apollos in Corinth and Paul on his way back to Ephesus on this next missionary journey. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus and there he found some disciples. So, uh, we've got uh, Israel and uh, Jerusalem down the bottom here. We've got, when it says, 
Paul took the road through the interior. It's talking about the interior here because his hometown was up here in uh, a name that I can't remember. Um, but that was Paul's hometown area. He's taken the road through the interior of what is modern-day Turkey, and he's uh, heading towards Ephesus. And at this time, Apollos is over here in Corinth in Greece. So Paul's already travelled through here a few times and all over this region, planting churches. But when he gets back to Ephesus, which is here, you can see the pointer dot, Paul's been travelling on foot through Turkey, or what we call Turkey today, and uh, he gets back to Ephesus, he finds some disciples who were in a similar situation to Apollos. They had believed, they were disciples of some description, but they didn't have it all together yet. They needed something more for their faith. They looked like believers, but Paul wants to suss out how much they know. So if we look at verses 2 and 3, he starts questioning them. He asks, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. So, so here are some people who are learners, they are disciples, but they're missing something. They don't have the right components quite yet to be saved. So they're close to Christianity, but they haven't quite entered in. They're not over the line yet. Close but no cigar, as the saying goes. And the proof that they're not saved, they haven't received the Holy Spirit. And so throughout Acts, the book, the sign that salvation has come to someone is that they receive the Holy Spirit. We get plenty of examples of people who are seeking God, but they weren't quite over the line, like Cornelius. He becomes a believer, he receives the Holy Spirit. Ethiopian eunuch, he's reading the scriptures, he's searching, searching, but then he, receives, he believes and he receives the Holy Spirit. When they receive the good news about Jesus, they're baptized and the Holy Spirit is poured on them, often with supernatural signs to, as well. Now, Acts is a time of transition between the old covenant, the old way of belief, to the fuller faith in Jesus Christ. And God used supernatural signs to definitively demonstrate this shift in the way that they were to approach faith and think about God and his relationship to his people. And this is what happens when they hear the gospel about Jesus. God uses these signs, these supernatural signs to demonstrate that, they, that this has happened. They're baptized and they receive the Holy Spirit. Let's look at verses 4 to 7. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. So these folks were essentially living in the Old Testament, still waiting for the coming one, the Messiah. And then Paul turns up and tells them Jesus has arrived, and so they enter into New Testament faith. Fun fact, there are actually still people around, some of them in the, in the Middle East, who follow John the Baptist as a prophet, but aren't really interested in Jesus. They, they are stuck in a pre-Jesus um, set you know, faith. And some of them have emigrated to Australia. And in fact, in Melbourne, you can find them going down to the river 
and undergoing washings from the baptism of John, but they have, they're stuck. They still need to come into the faith in Jesus Christ. They're living under the old covenant, so to speak. And then, but they need to come into the new covenant with this new baptism. They needed to go from a baptism of expectation and anticipation into a baptism of fulfillment. We might think about it like pregnancy. Uh, we have many mothers among us, so I think it might be an apt analogy of something that you've experienced. When a, when a woman is pregnant, we say you're expecting a pregnant mother lives in expectation of the child which is coming. But then when the child has come, it is the fulfillment of the expectation. The pregnancy is over. It, we might look back on it with, uh, with joy or displeasure. But once the child is here, there is no more pregnancy. It is complete. And these disciples in Ephesus were still living as though pregnant when the child had arrived. And on hearing the good news that Jesus had arrived, they took the sign of faith, which is baptism, and they entered into salvation. They received the Holy Spirit, and God poured out His Spirit on them in a special way to show that the deal was sealed. Now, some people around the traps will read a passage like this, and they'll go, see, there's two types of baptism. You've got to get a baptism of the physical baptism, and then you've got to get a special baptism of the Holy Spirit that's separate. But this is a misreading of the text. The assumption of the Bible is that if you have been baptized in Jesus, you have received the Spirit. And that's how Paul talks here. He says, have you received the Spirit? No. Well, the follow-up question is, then what were you baptized into? There is an inseparable connection between faith in Jesus and baptism and the Holy Spirit. These three things go together. The connection is so close that in the Bible, sometimes they seem to overlap. Talking about one is talking about the other. Paul tells the Ephesians later in a letter that he writes to them that one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We have one faith, we have one baptism, no, not separate baptisms in the water and baptisms of the Holy Spirit. It all goes together. But we can only truly receive the fullness of faith and enter into Christianity when somebody shares the gospel. We need somebody like Paul to come along and to share the good news with us. A full Christian faith can only come when the gospel is shared. And so what can we learn from this first part of the passage? We're not likely to run into some of John the Baptist's disciples around the traps, but we're reminded that there are people today who need to hear about Jesus, and they need, um, there's some things, there's some good things to learn about from this experience. Firstly, that we should be humble enough to be instructed in the faith. We should be humble enough to be instructed in the faith. You, you can't assume that you have it all together. We're all learners and disciples on the way, and we all must be aware of our deficiencies. So, be ready, be humble enough to be instructed in the faith. Next, be willing to share the gospel with those who are following in your footsteps. It's not just believers who need to hear 
the gospel. All of us need to, sorry, it's not just non-believers who need to hear the gospel. All of us need to hear the gospel. Weekly and daily gospel input trains us in our faith, in our lifestyle. And now, if you're a little ways down the road of Christian faith, then that means there are other people behind you walking the road of faith in discipleship who need to hear and be encouraged and be built up along the way. Like Paul was encouraging those guys who, hadn't, who needed the help to move forward in their discipleship. Are you willing to help others in your discipleship? And see, uh, faith, baptism, and the Holy Spirit belong together. Faith, baptism, and the Holy Spirit belong together. Don't let anybody split these things up. If you believe in Jesus, then we get baptized. If you believe in Jesus and you've been baptized, you've received the Holy Spirit. If you believe in Jesus but you haven't been baptized, then let's get you wet. Come and talk to me about getting you wet because... Uh, these things all go together. The sign that you have entered into Christ and received the Holy Spirit is baptism. So the first side effect of sharing the gospel is that we get a whole gospel for a full faith. But the next side effect is that everyone hears the good news. Everyone hears the good news. The gospel is meant to go out with God's work in the world. This happens as Paul sends a couple, spends a couple of years in Ephesus sharing the gospel with anybody who will give him an ear. And there are three primary ways we see the gospel going out so that everybody can hear in this section. I'm going to read verses 8 to 10 and then we'll review three ways or four ways that we see the gospel message going out. So in verses 8 to 10... Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Did you see that? Is there something, sorry to pause there. We don't like to talk about this. Culturally speaking, we have an aversion to this, but we'll see what Paul did. He spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So how are people hearing here? How are people hearing the gospel? They're hearing it through apologetics. The gospel goes out so that everyone can hear by Paul practicing apologetics. Apologetics is a fancy word that means reasoned arguments in justification of a theory or doctrine. Reasoned arguments in justification of a theory or doctrine. So Paul is going out there and he is arguing persuasively with people to try and show them the truth of the gospel. I think some of us have been... um, are either scared of the word apologetics because we think of these people with lots of degrees who go around on speaking tours and who seem to know all the answers. We think of that as apologetics and we go, I can't do that. Or perhaps we're afraid of apologetics. We go, I don't know enough. Um, and, uh, or perhaps we've seen apologetics done poorly and so we kind of have an aversion to it. But I encourage you not to be afraid of this. 
This is just part and parcel of trying to tell people about the gospel. It's answering objections. It's talking about why we can trust the Bible, why we believe what we believe. So Paul reasoned with them. He argued persuasively. He spoke boldly. Apologetics is having a defense of your faith. But another thing that we see is that we see that the gospel goes out through church planting. The gospel goes out so that everyone can hear by church planting. Ideally, Paul would have stayed in that one synagogue and all the people who heard him would have become Christians. That would have been great. If that whole synagogue was converted and that synagogue, that Jewish synagogue would have become a Christian church. But that's not what happened. Eventually, they got to the point where Paul had to get kicked out. And so he left and he had to go and find another location where they would, um, another location where they could meet and the gospel could be shared. And so Paul has a habit of planting churches wherever he goes. And this, in essence, is another way of planting a church. So he didn't have anywhere to meet. He went out and basically found a rented facility, like we rent this hall. So he had to go and find somewhere else. He went and hired the hall of Tyrannus, and they would daily meet there. Uh, don't think when you think of a house church, you might be thinking of a four-bedroom house in the suburbs. Uh, but some of the house churches of the New Testament were probably in wealthy people's homes. So this is an example of a first-century Roman home. This particular one is from Pompeii but a similar architectural style was spread across the region. And this is kind of like their foyer, their opening to their home. And so you can see there's plenty of room for people to meet and gather there. And in fact, some of the uh, philosophers and stuff would encourage people to come to their house every morning and so they could kind of give a morning oration uh, and, and give their divine wisdom to the, to the plebs, so to speak. That was a practice that, that the pagans would do. But in terms of a Christian household, if there was a wealthy Christian who opened up their household for Christians to, to meet in, it was probably like this, a kind of a common area, kind of just inside their home, where other people could come um, at all sorts of times of day. It could have been something like that, or it could have been in a kind of an attached hall on the side of the house. So, the hall of Tyrannus may have been something like this, which is a kind of attached to the side of a house, a large hall. And as I'm sure you can see, halls like that became the way that churches were built when Christians were later allowed to own property, in terms of churches were allowed to own property. They went and built a whole bunch of things that we would call a basilica, these kinds of halls with a domed roof so that Christians could meet and worship and study and so Paul is uh, he's sharing the gospel in Ephesus. A church is planted. They're gathering together regularly. And with a space like this, Paul and other Christians were able to reach more people because at any every day they could meet there and they could talk. People could come and find out stuff if they were interested. And this was always Paul's pattern, to bring the gospel to a new era, area, to plant a church, to see people discipled. And from there, these people could go out and... Um, go out into the world and make more disciples, planting more churches so that everyone hears the good news. Um, and just a, a reminder that, that the gospel goes out through those gatherings, through those gatherings. It's not just um, a, a church planted, but it's a church gathering. 
As Christians gather regularly for worship, there is the regular proclamation of the gospel where people are encouraged to already believe and people who have not yet believed can find faith. Every time we come together here, we're publicly proclaiming the good news about Jesus and so the gospel can go out. But we see that the gospel goes out through intentional ministry, intentional ministry. Yes, God can use all kinds of ways to get the gospel out there. God can uh, give people strange dreams. God can give people providential stuff. I remember hearing one story about a guy with a Gideon's Bible. Um, I think he was on a roof and he was about to jump off the roof. And there's some kid who'd been given a little pocket Gideon's Bible and he was being silly and he threw it. And so this guy who's just about to end his life gets smacked in the face with, with the Word of God. And he took that as a sign and repented and believed and obviously didn't jump off the roof. So God can use kind of the providence, God can use circumstances like that, but ordinarily, God works through intentional, ordinary ministry, people working for the sake of the gospel, serving one another, building each other up in families, in their church communities, in the teaching and preaching. And the effect of Paul's ministry is that he, his, his intentional ministry means that over the course of two years, people all over that region heard about Jesus, either by direct contact with Christians or by reputation. The spread was so complete that they could say all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Yeah, don't think Asia as in when we think of the continent of Asia from China to, to Turkey, but think of the, that kind of the area around Ephesus, the whole area around Ephesus, heard the word of the Lord. Imagine being able to say that here today. Let's say we had two years of ministry here at Flooding Creek, and because of that two years of ministry, all the people in sale heard the word of the Lord. That was the outcome of his intentional ministry. God works over time. Sometimes we're tempted to get frustrated that we don't see immediate change. But month in, month out, over time, intentional ministry is effective. It might not be two years for us. It might be six months or 80 years. But as the good news is intentionally spread, everyone gets to hear it. And God does his work on people's lives through his word. So the second side effect of sharing the gospel is that everyone gets to hear the good news. The third side effect of sharing, um, yeah, the third, third side effect of the gospel is that we get to see God's work and God's glory. God's work and God's glory. You see, Christians stand out as ambassadors of the gospel, taking the message out, and then God, by his uh, spirit and power works in hearts and minds in the world. He works by his spirit. And that's what happens here. God, Paul goes out in the world working hard to herald the kingdom of God. And, and God works through this with miracles to give people a foretaste of the world to come. Uh, 
the miracles also served to support and prove that the message was true. That's what's happening in uh, verse, uh, verses 11 and 12. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. When you first read this, you might start to think, hang on, have we started reading uh, a fantasy novel, some kind of uh, Dungeons and Dragons-esque uh, fantasy where there's my mystical um, items, magical items that cause healing? Well, no. It's not, these, these mag there aren't, we're not reading a fantasy novel. We, we notice here, though, that God is working with these ordinary things. We're not meant to so much take notice of the items themselves, but of who is doing it, what is happening. God was doing these things. Paul was an instrument, so were the hankies, but God was doing the miraculous. God is the one that we marvel at when we read of these weird and wonderful events. And this miracles, these miracles fit right in with the pattern of the Bible. God performs all kinds of miracles in all kinds of different ways. If you read across the pages of Scripture, you see Moses holding a staff above his head to win a battle, Elijah's cloak parting the water, Jesus spitting in dust to make a little slurry to heal somebody's eyes, or even Jesus turning up to the scene of a miracle and healing somebody, sorry, not turning up to the scene and healing somebody remotely. And I think we're not meant to pay attention to the mode so much as in, obviously we should, it's in the scriptures, but we're not meant to go, this is the way that you do miracles, with spitting in the mud and making a slurry, or rolling up your cloak, or using a hanky. What we're meant to see is that God does his work. There's not a magic style that makes it happen, it's God who does the work. God causes these things to happen. And in this case, in Ephesus, God uses sweaty rags and dirty work aprons to show his power and reinforce the gospel message. It's kind of sanitized here when we say handkerchiefs and aprons. No, this is, this is sweaty rags and work aprons. Paul was a tent maker. He's been wearing these aprons while he's been working hard. And as if to prove the point that it's not about magic relics or mystical incantations... We have a story next about what happens when you try to use Jesus' name as a magic spell. Some Jews went around driving out evil spirits, tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. And when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Uh, yes, you can laugh at this. This is amusing. It is, it's funny. These guys had heard and seen or seen the power of God at work in the message of Jesus and they thought, how about we have a go? We'll try and use Jesus' name. If it works for Paul, maybe it will work for us. 
the exorcism business is a tough gig. Maybe every little bit helps. It's a big mistake. They tried to invoke the power of Jesus without actually belonging to Jesus, without actually being on Jesus' side. It's like trying to invoke uh, the name of somebody that you're not, who's not going to back you up. Imagine a kid in the, in the playground, and there's a bully who comes to beat him up, and, he, and the little kid says to the bully, you know, don't hurt me or I'll get my brother to beat you up. And the bully goes, I know that you don't have an older brother. You're, you're bluffing. So that's what's happening here. These guys, they come and they try and invoke the name of Jesus. They say, look, we've got the power. You've got to listen to us. But they weren't with Jesus. They weren't on his side. There's no use invoking the name of somebody that you're not connected to. And Jesus' name is not something to be messed with. It's not a magic spell. It's not to be used in vain. And this whole incident, it becomes a bit of a story that gets passed around so that everyone in the area knew something about the power and danger of Jesus Christ. This is the, Jesus is the name that either enrages demons in the wrong hands or it casts them out when God is working. And I know this is not normally the way we think about, if we think about gospel ministry and trying to reach the lost, we're not, we're probably not thinking about this as a, as a strategy of evangelism, but this is how God uses it. God uses it so that his name is spread, his fame is spread. And just a quick word here on the spiritual realm, the spiritual realm is real and dangerous. It's not something to be messed with. Jesus has overcome the spiritual world. Jesus has defeated the powers of of Satan and his cronies. But that does not give us permission to start going and messing around with it. It doesn't give us permission... Uh, to, to act as if um, we are bigger and better than what we are. You remember the angelic powers, uh, when they show up across the pages of the scripture, they are terrifying, like literally they cause terror in people. They are strong and God made them that way because God made them as wonderful um, kind of glory uh, reflectors that would reflect his own glory. They are these, they are amazing spiritual beings that are part of God's created order. They are quite powerful, but they're not for us to go around and try and mess with. Whenever, if, you, if ever you find yourself in a situation where you think there is something spiritual going on, rest and trust in Christ, invoke the name of Christ, as long as you're on Jesus' side, you actually belong to Jesus, and he will cover you and protect you. Go to Christ Don't try and take on the demons by yourself. God matches his word with signs of its authenticity. Sometimes with fear-inspiring events like this this demon situation. Sometimes with miracles. Sometimes with an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in a special way. With healing or or speaking in languages. But as we saw, um, this work is also in people's hearts. Sometimes it will be flashy and fantastical, but ordinarily, most often, it's quiet and ordinary in people's hearts. God always works with his word, and it's not ineffective because we aren't seeing uh, the crazy, uh, mystical and wonderful things happening. The side effects of sharing the gospel is that we see God's work and glory. And then in our fourth and last side effect, 
we see that when we share the gospel, we change for the better. People change for the better. And that's what's happening in Ephesus. When people hear about Jesus, their lives were changed. They came confessing their sins. They came repenting. They came giving up their evil ways that they had held on to. In verses 18 and 20, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. The word spread and it changed people's hearts. These people were already believing in Jesus, but they're convicted of their sin. They've come to realize that the magic arts and the magic books that they had could not, could not fit with Jesus. It, it didn't connect. If they were going to stick with Jesus, they needed to get rid of this magic books. Jesus and paganism do not go together. Jesus and New Age stuff does not go together. Jesus and mysticism does not go together. You can't have a bit of Jesus and a bit of something else, some other kind of religious stuff or occult practices. You can't serve two masters. And so these believers, in repentance, bring out their scrolls and incantations and stuff, and they burned it. They got rid of it. It was a massive statement to the world, a massive statement to the spiritual realm that they were done with all of this stuff that they were on Jesus' team. Now, I did the sums, and I reckon in today's money, the magic books would be worth about 10 million Australian dollars. That's what we're talking about. 50,000 drachmas works out to be about 10 million Australian dollars. They just burned it. It's 130 years' worth of wages. It was a massive amount of money. But they were willing, they didn't go, I'll sell this and get some money back. They knew that this stuff was a pile of rubbish and that nobody else should touch it. They needed to get rid of it. And so they burnt it to the ground. Everywhere in, we turn in the scriptures, we find that there are peoples whose lives are changed when they encounter God, when they encounter God, especially through Jesus Christ. And for the people of Acts, and for us today, when we encounter Jesus through the message that is proclaimed to us, the gospel, the good news, we change as well. Jesus is the one who came to save sinners. He came from God as a man and he died as a sacrifice in your place, redeeming you from your sin. He redeems all those who would put their faith and trust in him. And he sends his spirit into you afterward to change you from the inside out. But it comes through repentance, a turning around. Jesus takes lives that are slaves to sin and he makes them slaves of righteousness. They have turned around. He takes people who are in demonic oppression and he gives them freedom. He takes people who are hopeless and gives them hope. From guilt to guiltless. From shame to honour from unholy to holy. The gospel goes out into the world and the side effect is that people are rapidly, fundamentally changed from the inside out. 
we're turned around, we grow and mature and we're perfected in Jesus, being purified and sanctified so that we might be pleasing to God. We can't remain rebellious. The Lord has saved us and he's put us in his kingdom. But even now we need to deal with the sin that arises. Like these guys who were believers, but they realized, hang on, we've got this stuff sticking around with us, these magic scrolls. They needed to deal with it. They needed to get rid of it. And so even though they were already believers, they needed to come out and confess. They needed to come out and show that they were getting rid of this stuff, that they were repenting, that they were turning around. And that's what God calls each of you to do. Yes, you belong to him. You're in the family when you trust in Jesus. But you've still got to bring out and get rid of the rubbish. As Carl was talking about before, we need to take out the trash. We need to be dealt with. We must come divulging our evil practices as ones who live in God's house now. Now... I'm guessing that most of us aren't dabbling in the occult. And if you are, I tell you to run, get away from that. But more likely, our sins are a little more everyday and perhaps even respectable in our society. Do you cover up your greed and content, discontentment by saying, I'm a driven person? Do you have a pride and arrogance that you call a big personality? Do you have a worldliness in your heart that you call Christian freedom? Do you have anxiety and worry that you blame on past experiences? Brothers and sisters, God knows what sins we have and he loved you and saved you anyway. He loved you and saved you knowing what you've done, knowing how you'll fail in the future, but he wants you. And he wants you to be free from that sin that is still in your life. When we sin, we are playing with fire. And God doesn't want us to throw our lives away in sin. So we want to hear the gospel message. We want to repent. We want to put our faith and trust in him. Even if we've heard it a hundred times before, we still need to hear it. We still need to turn away. That's why every Sunday when we come together, we have a corporate confession of sin and a, and, a, and a recognition of the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ because we perpetually need to keep our eyes on Jesus. So whatever sin you have right now, get rid of it. Come and confess to your brothers and sisters, divulge your practices and destroy the evil things that have been pulling you that direction. You might think, man, if people knew what I had done. They would kick me out of the church. They wouldn't love me. They wouldn't see me the same anymore. But Christ wants you to get rid of those things and Christ loved you and Christ's church loves you despite these things. Now, I've learned over the years not to be surprised when people confess their sins. The shock value is gone. But I shouldn't have been surprised because I know the depravity of my own heart. We are all people who have de 
who have sinned in our hearts. We are all people who need our hearts to be cleansed and changed from the inside out. So amongst us here, I don't know this for a fact, but I have a pretty good, a pretty good guess that there are people among us here who have stolen and lied and cheated and deceived and even now have fear that they will be found out. There are people who have been lost in pornography, bedded someone that they weren't married to. People who've used their tongue to tear down others or, or to bear false witness against their neighbour or spread rumours. Some of us here have repeatedly drunk too much, eaten too much, or been addicted to drugs. But Jesus can change us. Jesus can forgive. Jesus changes lives. Jesus even saves murderers. Nothing you have done can separate you from the love of God. But you must repent. Let go of your sin. Give it up. Turn away from it. Turn from your sin and run to Jesus. So what sinful habits do you need to repent of today? Perhaps you might be thinking, how am I supposed to deal with this? How am I supposed to broach this and find forgiveness in this? If you're in a discipleship group, that might be a good place for you to start opening up and saying, hey, there's this sin in my life that needs to be taken away, that I need to run away from. Hopefully in a, in a little while, us blokes are getting away for a, a night together. And that might be a good opportunity amongst brothers who love you and care for you to be able to share with them the sin that you need to repent of. But when we just hold on to it and keep it in ourselves it tends to only fester and grow. It needs to be brought out into the light. The good news about Jesus comes not so that we can justify our sin, but so that our sin may be taken away. The side effect of receiving the gospel is that our lives are changed for the better. Sometimes the miraculous happens and there is the physical healing, but no matter what happens, have with miraculous or not, there is spiritual healing available to you. The miraculous is not guaranteed, but the spiritual healing is in Jesus Christ. Changes on the inside are the result of the God's gospel going out. So just to summarize where we've been, the, the side effects of sharing the gospel, what are they? We get the whole gospel for a full faith. Everyone gets to hear the good news we get to see God's work and God's glory and we see people change for the better. These things all happen as a result of God's word going out in the good news about Jesus Christ. Sometimes there will be rejection and persecution as well. That'll be a side effect. But there is the overwhelming benefits of sharing God's good news. In this case, Paul gets the spotlight because he's the one going out and sharing the good news. And it might be easy to kind of put him up on a pedestal as an apostle and he's this kind of super guy. But there is a sense in which all of us are called as God's people to be carriers of this message, to take it out into the world, take it to our children, take it to our neighbours, to our husband and wife, to our brothers and sisters. It needs to go out 
The side effects are guaranteed, but somebody needs to take the message out. Our world is sick and broken. We need people to take the message out. People need the medicine. There are the hopeless, the sick. There's people who are weighed down by their sin. And the gospel is what will free them. Will you take them the message of freedom? Will you take the medicine that they need and give it to them? You can't force them to take the medicine, but at the very least, you can provide them with it. The word of God, the gospel will prevail mightily in the hands of a mighty God. Take it out there so that everyone can share in the beautiful, wonderful side effects.